uh, this past week and had realized I had preached on Mark 2 once before. It was my second year in seminary, so I was in my mid-20s, and I said, well, let me go back and look and see what I preach, because at 26, I mean, I had already had two semesters of seminary. I realized I pretty much knew everything. Uh, Y'all, it was bad. It was bad. I mean, listen, no matter what happens in the next 20 minutes, it ain't going to be that, okay? The Lord's hopefully grown me a bit. But this is a good passage to go back to as we finish out this series looking at the early ministry of Jesus. What we're going to do next week is begin to look to the cross bearer, to look at the cross and ask why. Why did Jesus have to die? As we prepare our hearts for Good Friday and for Easter, why was there a cross? Okay, so that's where we'll be going for the next several weeks, and we'll be going through various passages for that. But today we're going to finish up the early ministry of Jesus, and I reserve the right to come back. We might look at what did he do in the middle of his ministry. We may come back and say, what were the last things uh, that he was preoccupied with in his ministry? But we'll finish this part out today. So if you're following along in your notes, some background. You may have noticed I skipped the end of chapter 1. We just didn't have time for that story about the healing of the leper. But I thought it would be important as we talk about Jesus' early ministry to catch what happens in chapter 2, verse 1. He's finishing, and remember, there's not a whole lot of preaching in Galilee in Mark. He's more about miracles and getting to Holy Week. But this is the end of the Galilean preaching pretty much. And what you have packed into just a chapter and then another six verses, from chapter 2, 1 to chapter 3, 6, is a, is a really different section of Scripture for Mark. We're seeing a transition. You're going to see just in these few verses five different controversies that are going to come up. And Jesus is going to have to combat them all. And when he gets through in chapter 6 of verse, of, of verse 3 of chapter excuse me, verse 6 of chapter 3, they want to kill him. That early on in his ministry. So this section is a substantial section of Mark's gospel, and we're going to have to come back to it. It reminds us again of the cost of following Jesus. And then one other side road, just a side road before we dive into these passages. We see here that this was, according to Mark, the home of Jesus Christ. At this time. Now you and I remember from John 14, 2 through 3, we hear this in funerals, rightly so, all the time, that in my Father's house are many mansions. I want the mansion. That's not really what it says in the Greek, but I'll take the mansion, right? And then sometimes we say, in, in my Father's house are many rooms. Maybe the best understanding, if you listen to some biblical scholars, in my Father's house are these houses. There are these houses that, that a, that a newlywed couple, that, a, that, that, the, that the groom would go and prepare for his new bride on his father's property. In my father's place, where he, where he has all these homes, this is like this home where they're beginning life together. For those of us who are married, or even if you're single, just remember your, your first home or your first apartment. You remember that? It was probably pretty bad, but we remember it with fondness, right? I was a youth minister right out of college, Sarah, before she ended up working at a hospital and a PT uh, place, was doing inner city ministry. 
in Jackson. So we weren't exactly rolling in the dough at that point uh, in our new marriage. So we had this apartment. Now, it was two stories, we had, but it was the second and third floor, and the air conditioner didn't reach the third floor. So we spent the whole summer on the pull-out couch on the second floor. That's where we would sleep. We had been in that apartment maybe two months after our wedding, and one of the, the cabinets fell out of the wall, and most of our wedding dishes were broken. Aw, oh, I'm a guy. I don't care. I was just worried about the money. How much was that going to cost me? That's all I thought about. You could hear gunshots where we were living in Jackson at the time. There were characters that I will not describe for you that lived under us and across the street that someday books will be written about, right? All of that didn't matter. It was home. It was our new home together. You all remember your first apartment after school or your first home together after school. Listen, I, I still go back. The first home I can remember, 127 East Market Street in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, half of a barn house, had an attic. My dad actually found some antiques in the floorboard uh, of the attic, and some old bottles and things like that. It wasn't anything fancy. It had a basement, y'all. Let me tell you what a basement is. It's this room uh, from Pennsylvania. Had a basement. I remember that had a staircase going up to the second floor, and it was a real thin uh, staircase, and it went, you had to go down the stairs and then go right out to your left, right? Because it just, it dead ended right there. Didn't stop me. Take the pillow, ride the staircase down, bam, hit the wall, go back up again. I remember that. Maybe what's wrong today. But anyway, wasn't much. But every time we go back to Lidditz, I have to drive by that house. Why? Because it was home. It was home. Um, Michael Card says this, and I know some of us do not have good memories of home. I understand that. But Christian singer Michael Card says that when we get to heaven one day, we will find it as like coming home. And we will think to ourselves, I knew it would be like this. You look at Jesus, where's his earthly home? Mary's pregnant, but she's got to leave town and go back to Bethlehem, even though it's of her lineage, of, her, of, their, of their family line. It's not home. And then right after that, a year or two after that, they've got to race to Egypt for a season. And then they come back, and the town they come back to is not friendly to probably his parents during that day, but even when he comes back to preach, they end up wanting to kill him. Uh, home was not home for Jesus like we think. Even during his ministry, he ends up saying in Matthew 8, 20, I've got nowhere to put my head. I've got nowhere but Capernaum. This was not just base of operation, but Mark even goes out of his way to say, this is like home. It's a great reminder uh, to us, and we said it last week, the way your home can be a ministry. I know we've got crazy schedules, but there's something about, not just for our kids or our grandkids, but for our neighbors, for people who've moved to our neighborhoods or people who are new to town or to our church, to let home be a ministry. We just don't do that well. I've told you before, from the age, really, third grade to eighth grade. So those six years, I went to five different schools. 
Last, my last church, we were there seven years. I lived in the parsonage there for seven years. It's the longest I've ever lived in a home in my life. Just constantly moving. And that's been the reality for several of our families. It's just, that's your vocation, that's your call, and you're moving. But there's something about where you are, you make it home. And Mark says, for Jesus, this was his home. What a gift it is when you can gift that to somebody, whether it's Capernaum or even Jesus when he's going to Jerusalem. He doesn't spend a single night in his city. It's his holy city, Jerusalem. Where does he go? Going over to Bethany to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And the reason I bet, it's like home. It's a place of refreshment and encouragement. It's a great gift that you will give to others to make home like home for them. So let's walk to our passage then. Starting at verse 5, we get a picture of who Jesus is, and after we see a picture of who he is, we're always going to get a a picture of then who we are to be. But this picture of Jesus, first in verse 5, and we've said this before, but it just keeps showing itself throughout Mark's gospel, we get a picture of his authority. Really of his divinity. His authority and his divinity, because in verse 5, you see him forgive somebody, this paralytic, for his sins. And they lose it. They go ballistic. Now think about this. This man is a paralytic. And he's just received a physical healing. And then this wonderful spiritual word in his life that wherever you've been, whatever you've done, if you're coming to me, I'm a God of grace, you can be forgiven. Let's celebrate. No, you've crossed the line. And they, in their minds, understand what Jesus is claiming. Listen, you're going to read commentaries. You're going to read Bible studies that say that Jesus never claimed authority, that Jesus never claimed divinity. Everybody in that room who got upset knew exactly what Jesus was claiming. To say, I forgive sins, means to say, I am God. And it's not only that that's a picture of his divinity and his authority. Mark will even say he knew exactly what was going on in their hearts. So he had this omniscience about him. He knew what was going on. But also that claim is another of several claims in his life where he claims divinity. They get it so much again that by Mark Mark 3, 6, they plot to kill, in their words, this blasphemer. Because you're equating yourself with God. Part of the call of Mark's gospel is yes, we'll get to it. Jesus' great compassion for people. But we cannot miss that the Son of Man has all authority. And as I look over my life this week, I ask myself, would my spouse say that about me? Would my best friend say that about me? Would my kids say that about me? Would my coworkers say, yes, Jesus reigns in that life? Jesus, the Son of Man, has all authority. Not that he just saved Barry. But he is reigning in his life. Jesus' first sermon is, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus taking up his cross, the Father taking his life back up in the resurrection. The kingdom is breaking in. And we have to submit to his authority. Verse 11, we also then see his great compassion. We saw some of this last week, but here just how this is put on display the way in which Jesus waits for this paralytic, the mercy that he has in his life. And again, I skipped the leper story. I wish we had time for that. That was actually part of my notes for last week. 
Not 11 point. We were going to go 13 or 14 points. God is a God of compassion. He had it for you last week when he made me cut it out. But you think about that. You know that. You learned it in Sunday school. If you're a leper in that day, you went about screaming when anybody got within a certain radius of where you were, unclean. Don't come near me. I am unclean. And just not only in their minds were they physically unclean and, and living a horrific life of suffering, but in that day, in the mythology of that day, oh, what have you done? Remember in John's Gospel, or what did your parents do to make you blind, right? You're spiritually unclean, and Jesus ministers to him, and here he does the same for this paralytic as he has done for others in Mark's Gospel already. 31% of, of Jesus' activity uh, in the Gospel of John is healing. He's a God of, who will touch where we are struggling, whatever that is, if it's emotional, if it's spiritual. He comes to us and, and is with us and has a heart broken for people who are struggling. Now, the bulk of this book, I've told you, this is a race to get to the cross. That's where we'll start next week. It's a race to get to the cross. Everything slows down, pound for pound. There's not a gospel that has more attention to Holy Week than Mark's gospel. But, but a huge portion of it, almost a third, is about the healings of Jesus. That so we serve a God who will come and be with his, his people in their suffering. Yes, this proves his messiahship, that he has authority over this physical world. But I think it shows even much more about his heart and his love. What was Jesus doing, by the way? You heard the scriptures. What was he doing at this point? He was at home. Then all these people just flood his home. And Jesus says, get out. No. He's teaching. So here is the word of God, Jesus himself giving the word. And he lets himself be interrupted? Cliff Wright, who was the pastor at Christ Methodist Church while I was there, did one of the greatest preacher moves I've ever seen in my life. In just his first months of being at that church, somebody up in the balcony, it was over this way, let their cell phone ring while he was preaching. Now listen, he did the, the, the typical preacher move. You know, right? You give the look, right? I give it, you know, I give it to some of y'all. The preacher look, oh. Well, the phone finally went off. He went back to preaching. It rang again. We'll wait. I never heard another cell phone go off at Christ Methodist Church ever again. Don't interrupt me, I'm preaching. Jesus waits. Can you imagine that? This is the Word of God. Jesus, the Logos of God, preaching the Word to a house that's so packed they have to go through the roof. Don't interrupt Jesus. And Jesus allows for that for his schedule, for his life, even his purposes, because we just come from a passage where Jesus says, one of the key reasons that I have come is to preach, and yet he can be interrupted here. Can you see that, by the way? Jesus preaching, and then you hear this noise. Jesus preaching, and then <coughs> dust coming down from this roof, and just having to take a break what Jesus does. And I, I just look at his life and I look at my life 
and I see the way he models compassion, but also how he can be interrupted for somebody in need. How is it you and I need to hear that today, this week, and in the weeks to come? I know you're doing something great. I know you're doing family well. I know you're doing work well. I know you're doing this well. Jesus was doing his core ministry of preaching and says, yeah, I'll wait. Get down here. I've got other work to do. How is it you and I can be interrupted for kingdom purposes? You see this so beautifully in Jesus' life. Authority and compassion. So much so that when they see it, what do they say? What's the response? I've never seen anything like this before. All authority, but also this heart of compassion. So what about ourselves? I mean, there's obvious things that we should see in our lives that should be a picture of our life. Yes, we surrender to Christ's authority. Yes, we ought to be putting the compassion of, of Christ on display, that we ought to be interrupted. But it goes deeper than that. And Renee hinted of that in verse 4. There is always, for kingdom people, there's always a cost. There's always a cost to follow Jesus. Look, there was a cost this day. I mean, you know somebody in there was going, I'm glad he's healed. Who's paying for the roof? Who's going to fix the roof, right? There's a cost for that kind of hospitality. There's a cost for that kind of interruption. There's a cost to do ministry well. You said it five, six years ago. We want to disciple better. We want to disciple more. Six million dollars later, we're able to do that because this church said, let it cost us. We're going to make a space. We're going to make a space where lives, more lives, can be changed for Christ. It's been beautiful to watch how that's happening in our children's ministry, our student ministry, and Celebrate Recovery, at IF Gathering, and so many other ministries that can happen because of the kind of space that church said, we'll take on that cost. We want to be kingdom people who will let, let us do that. It's been, it's been incredible what the Lord has done. Listen, I, I'm going to say to you, we have right stewardship of those facilities. Let me say that before I say what I'm about to say. We have right stewardship. So when we have a group come in or we do something, and by the way, y'all mess stuff up too. But when we, when we have events, we have to call people from time to time and say, hey, you can't come back, or hey, you need to do this your next time. But it was interesting about this building in the last four years. I just got a report last week where we had some issues with the group who was here in the last three to four years. And uh, we've said a word of truth to them, and we'll say another word of truth. But then to hear within the last six months of a, um, I have to be careful how I say this here, somebody who worked in a red light district was in our church. And that's the first time she responded to the gospel. It's because our church said, let us take the cost, and we want to have you here. I just found that, that news out recently. Uh, it costs to do ministry. It costs to be interrupted. It costs when we serve others. But there's no telling what God can do when you and I will say, you can have, you can have it. Whether it's resources or maybe the most precious commodity is time. That I will actually look you in the eye and give you time. John Wesley, it's interesting, John Wesley 
had some strong words for preachers and how they use their time because it's such a great gift and we have to be careful with it, making sure you're available and gifting your time to everybody, gifting your time to children, gifting your time to those who are struggling. Preachers, here's where you better be spending your time. And I know we feel like we don't have time. Now, I still, some of y'all I know are binging on Netflix. You've got some time, right? But I understand how stressed and pressed we are. But it's a great cost, but there are great fields of harvest and people who are overlooked, people who are forgotten, and when you gift them this time, which will cost you, in your prayer life, just the extra time you'll spend in giving people attention when nobody else will give them attention. When you pay that price, people notice. I was on Facebook a couple of weeks ago. Uh, my old youth group have a page. When I went through youth ministry, I can't tell you. I don't want to hurt my feelings or Corey's feelings or anybody who's done student ministry, Steve. I don't want to hurt our feelings. I can only remember about three or four lessons I ever heard at youth ministry. Now, now, I got saved at a youth group meeting, so, but I can only remember three or four or five lessons we covered. But I remember Phil. Phil was at every meeting. He wasn't my youth pastor. He was an adult who paid a price and was there every Sunday night. And he showed up on Facebook talking to our group, and I just wanted to say to Phil, so glad you're on here. I remember you. I remember what you've done for me, the way you encouraged me. Listen, I needed encouraging. I've told you my story. I didn't come to know Jesus till high school. But Phil's one of those adults who put up with a kid who was at, not acting right, a kid who was agitating, a kid who was all those things. Phil, because he sacrificed his time and said, Lord, you can have it every Sunday night. I'm going to be there. When you and I pay that price and give of ourselves for mission or for teaching our children or for evangelism, we, oh, there's so much harvest that can happen. Whether it's a hole in a roof or time or having to defer, whatever that may be, or even, y'all, the cost of taking on the name of Jesus. To be associated with somebody that just a few verses from here they're going to want to kill. You stand up for the name of Jesus. It's, a, it's getting harder. It's getting harder a lot of ways in our culture than in our social groups to stand up. Not to be obnoxious about that. Jesus wasn't. But to take a stand, there is a cost. When you and I will, you and I will do that, there's a harvest that can come from that. Lastly, verse 5. We not only see the importance of the cost for others, but also the faith for others. We live in a culture of radical individualism. I am the center of the world. I can do things on my own. And trust me, that's never gotten me in trouble when I am trying to find a place while I'm driving. Sarah's not in this service, so I can lie in front of you. But... but not asking for directions from somebody else has never gotten me in trouble. It's never gotten me in trouble on Christmas Eve, right? When I'm getting my presents for my kids, the, the presents I get, and I have to put them together, I don't need instructions. It's no big deal. We don't like to let people speak into our lives. And what Jesus is saying here is the faith of others matter. It matters so much that Mark, under the inspiration of the Spirit, 
when he talks about this, he doesn't say the faith of the man. He says their faith. There's something about your faith with other people. Now, I wish I had time. If you do a good Bible study of Mark, you have to have your own faith too. Okay? You can't just live off grandmama's faith or your youth pastor's faith. You have to own your faith too. And pretty much every healing that happens in Mark's gospel, the prerequisite for the move of God in their life was faith. It doesn't force God's hand. And it doesn't mean God doesn't love you if you don't get the answer that you want. But it is the prerequisite that there was faith by the person before receiving But here, there's this other reminder, too, of the importance of the faith of others. You see that in James' uh, epistle as well, in chapter 5, that the prayers of others can be a part of somebody's healing. The confronting of others about sin can even lead to somebody being saved. How is it you and I can go to bat for others who are struggling in their faith? There's a cost, but also there's this beautiful reminder here that our faith matters to Jesus. Whatever whatever Jesus takes notice of, I want to take notice of. Whatever gets his attention should get our attention. The faith of the friends mattered to Jesus. I don't know all of Reverend Martin Case's uh, grandchildren. I met one or two of them when I served with Martin for five and a half years in Batesville. He was my pastor for a couple of years when I was a kid. But here's what I do know. Every day of their life, Martin Case has prayed for his grandchildren by name. He is pleading for others. And my guess is that matters for them. Uh, I had a, knew of a pastor who had been working and just pouring his life into somebody. And he didn't even see them come to Christ until seven years later. It cost him. But his faith, that his, just the way he invested, his faith, it be, finally became contagious, and he finally got this rough guy to say yes to Jesus. And by the way, when he baptized him, I saw a video of it, he might have held him under about 10 seconds, just making sure it took, you know. <laughs> Your faith, the way that you uh, believe for others, the way that you'll pray for others, the way that you'll walk with them, it caught Jesus' eye. Not just the faith of the paralytic, but, but, but those boys getting up on that roof, they know. Not only could he read the scribe's heart, he read their heart. You all believe I can do this. And when you all, for your friends or for your children, will believe that Jesus can do a work and you won't give up, I bet it's going to bless your kids. Scripture sure seems that that it moved the heart of God. Let's pray about that. Father, we thank you for this picture of your son Jesus to be reminded again of his glory, of his great authority uh, over sin, that we can know we can have forgiveness if we repent of our sins because your son Jesus has that right to forgive. We thank you as well for what we've seen of his compassion about his heart for those who were in need. Father, I pray for all of us in this room that we would be real with you today and bring whatever need it is to your son Jesus, that we would just give it to him. And Father, we pray that through your spirit you do a wonderful work in whatever we've given. We just thank you that we serve a God who has compassion for us. Father, help us by your spirit. 
to see where there's a cost that needs to be paid, whether it be with our attention, our time, our schedule, our resources, or even our reputation uh, to be a part of your son's kingdom work. Would your, would your spirit prompt us on that and help us as well to make it not just about our faith, but to, Father, have eyes for the faith of others and to believe for others even when they won't believe. We just want to be wrapped up in that kind of kingdom work to matter to Jesus and to matter to others. We thank you for this, your word. Bless now our response to it. In your son's name and for his glory we pray. Amen.